One purchased, one donated. That's the promise of Bombas, whose incredibly comfy socks, tees, and underwear go not only to you when you buy them, but also to people facing homelessness. So when you put on that buttery soft tea or realize you've developed a habit of reaching for Bomba socks, which I do, over every other pair in the drawer, you'll know that someone in need is having that same feeling. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash hard things and use code hard things for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, I have a surprise to tell you, honey. I booked us an Airbnb at the Thousand Islands with more space and privacy. And we get to opt into my family. So near family, but not with family. Yes. You solved family near, but not with. (laughs) Thank you, Airbnb. (laughs) Have you ever thought about renting your place out? Like when you go away like that? Yeah, I have. There's some big events coming up in LA in the near future that I'm very excited that possibly we're going to do that for sure. When you really think about it, babe, it really is the perfect way to make some extra money when we're away from LA. When you're just living somewhere, it's easy to forget that the place you live in is actually a travel destination others want to visit. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Airbnb.com slash host. Sister, you should rent your house too. They stopped asking directions to places they back to We Can Do Hard Things. It's our favorite time of the week when we get to just sit and talk to you. I just love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love this podcast. Hi, babe. Hey. You feeling good? I'm feeling really good. You've changed in the last like three seconds because she's been whispering all morning. Well, okay. Here's why I whisper because Abby went to work out today. (laughs) And when Abby works out, she comes home from the gym and she thinks that she should still talk at the decibels that they talk at the gym. So she screams at me for just half hyped. I got she just screams. Dr. Becky will know what I have. I've got adrenaline running through my veins and it just makes people talk louder. So we're just standing in the bathroom and she's like, hey, babe. So I'm whispering <laughs> to be a role model. All right. I'm super intrigued already mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by what I this do. conversation will be because I got to tell you. So a lot of people in my life have been like, you must talk to Dr. Becky. Mm -hmm. You must talk to Dr. Becky. You must learn about Dr. Becky. Dr. Becky is presented to the world. And I'll I'll explain why I'm saying this as a parenting expert. Okay. (laughs) So I avoided Dr. Becky like the plague because my children are baked and I don't want to know how I fucked them up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's too late. I just avoided, avoided. All right. I started reading Dr. Becky's new book, and I think that Dr. Becky is a Trojan horse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is the truth. I -hmm. think she's a Trojan horse. I've been reading nonstop for the last week. You know this. I I took her book on vacation and I didn't stop. The underlining of this book. The highlighting, the underlining, the sitting the people down, the making them listen, all the things. (laughs) Okay, so here's the deal. Here's what I think. So, Untamed, all the work we do on this podcast, and specifically Untamed, is about how to recover, not just from addiction, but from the world. How do you recover from the world? How do you figure out and reclaim who you were before the world told you who you had to be? Fucked you up. Before the world fucked you up, right? (laughs) I'm trying, dad said, maybe we should avoid like six fucks in the first 30 seconds. I was trying to, okay. Great. Once again, the world bossing me. 
Hi, Bubba. So if we're going to do that, if we're going to recover who we were before the world told us who to be, then it feels like the step one, the first brick in the yellow brick road to that, to living your one wild and precious life is to begin to trust yourself, Mm. your emotions, your dreams, your body, your instincts, your imagination. But in order to do that, in order to take that first step or to experiment with it, even there's something you have to believe first. And that is that you are not bad. All right. That you are not crazy, that you can trust yourself because yourself is good and will not steer you wrong. Now that is the entire premise of untamed. That's why I said over and over again, you are not crazy. You are a goddamn cheetah, right? Yes. So this is why Dr. Becky's work and book blows my mind and why I'm deeply intrigued by her because the touch tree of her teachings is that we are all good inside our parents, our friends, our partners, our children, good inside, which by the way, might sound soft and simplistic at first, but is actually completely countercultural and revolutionary and against everything we're taught. And so what I feel about her book is that it is not just about parenting children. It's about reparenting ourselves and in fact, presenting us a new way to be human to be in relationship with ourselves and others. That is really awesome from like the woo-woo higher perspective. But I also feel like there's this very logical thread throughout her all of her work, which is like, you act like you do, even though it's inexplicable to you why you keep doing what you keep doing for a very good reason. Yes. And all of your parenting stems from your childhood. Yes. And so the way that you can identify that and understand yourself and have compassion for yourself the way you act is the first step to allowing yourself to start down a different way of doing things for your kids. Exactly. Or the people. You don't have to have freaking kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true, true. A bunch of stuff helped me with Abby. With like, okay, anyway, let's let's let her talk because she's actually here and and she's looking at us right now. We've just done a little- So that has been our podcast. Book report. Go get- Thank you for coming, Dr. We we actually have the author. We have the expert. Dr. Becky is a clinical psychologist and mom of three named the Millennial Parenting Whisperer by Time Magazine. Dr. Becky is founder of the Good Inside membership platform, author of Good Inside, a guide to becoming the parent you want to be, which is out this month and the one I just read on vacation. So freaking good. And her podcast, Good Inside with Dr. Becky, was one of Apple Podcasts' best shows of 2021. We love Dr. Becky's practical wisdom, how it centers on reparenting ourselves and how she admits that she follows her own professional advice only about a third of the time. In her own parenting. <laughs> that good. is why we trust you. That is exactly why we trust you. Hi, Dr. <laughs> Becky. Hi. I don't even know what else I have to say. I feel like you guys just summarized. I mean, that might be the whole podcast. That was such an amazingly thoughtful introduction. And truly, uh, I'm really honored to be talking to the three of you. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. So we're all trying to figure out, especially the pod squad, how to stop pleasing and start living, how to live from the inside out and not the outside in, Mm -hmm. how to stop abandoning ourselves and start believing in ourselves. And you say that the origin of pleasing and self-doubt can be found in our first years. Hmm. So tell us about circuitry and how, how the reason we're a little fucked up right now all stemmed back to those first years. Yes. When I think about everything coming from the early years, I 
I feel very like apocalyptic about things and just Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, like who cares anyway? And as much as it's true that our body wires early, it's just equally true that I, our body is always looking to rewire the things that are no longer working for us. So Mm -hmm. those two are equally true. Mm. So if we think about how a baby comes into the world, like this has always amazed me. There's no, not one baby in the world who at four weeks or two months is like, am I hungry? Is it too much? Like, is it too much? Like, would that baby be hungry? Should I ask them? I should be waking up earlier. I'm wasting my life. Right. Like, what am I doing? Or I should sleep late because my parents like really do need sleep. A baby is just a ball of desire. And totally unencumbered in how they let that out. Like, that's just how babies are. It's why they're so inconvenient to adults, Mm -hmm. right? Because they just have everything coming out. And if we all start that way, we all start that way. How do we get to where so many of us are at some point in adulthood, which is the place where somebody asking me, what do you want? What do you want? Is the scariest question somebody could ever ask me. Like, that's a really big shift. Mm. And so when you think about circuitry, what does that even mean? How I think about it is we learn a lot in our earliest years. We just know biologically, this is not research I've done. All right. But the numbers are big that, that by about age three, they say there's like 75% of our earliest circuitry or wiring is in place. Always amenable to rewiring. Okay. But 75% is a lot of percent for years that you can never verbally remember. And these are the years that people will classically say, well, they're not going to remember those years anyway, right? Mm -hmm. The first three years you remember with your body, which Uh. as adults we know is a much more powerful form of memory than the things that we can recall in storytelling because our body memories dictate our triggers and our reactivity Mm -hmm. and our automatic assumptions and our knee-jerk reactions. So I've always found it interesting when someone's in my practice essentially saying, yeah, like I, I triggered whenever my kid has a tantrum, but like, I just don't remember how my parents reacted to me. And I'm always like, really? Like we're watching it. Like I'm watching it happen. Like we just Whatever watch could the memory. Whatever it be, right? we have no like, data. Exactly. We have no data, right? But the things we remember with our words are the things that really were coherently explained to us. Right. At a time also that we could really encode verbal memory. So number one, that's not until like after the age of three. And number two, a a lot of us adults, you know, probably know that our hardest experiences were never put into words for us. That's actually Mm -hmm. why they were our hardest experiences is because we were left alone. They were incoherent. They were unformulated (sighs) experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. So then what are we left with? Well, You talked about trusting your body. Like it's a very simple idea, but I always think my body today is the same body as when I was one. I have not changed my body and my body has absorbed everything I've learned. And kids are very, very crafty. They are built for survival. They are so smart. They are more perceptive than we are because their body depends on it. Mm. And they have to figure out a way to adapt to the environment they're in. There's no option Mm. as a two-year-old to say, my parent's not very attentive to my needs. So I am going to, I don't know what, go get another parent. Like I'm going to leave my house and find (laughs) someone who notices my emotions. Like, no, you just have to figure it out and survive with those caregivers because those caregivers 
are key because you're so dependent. So what happens as you're wiring your body, something called procedural knowledge, like how does the world work? What parts of me get smiles and hugs and attention and nice looks? And what parts of me get dart eyes and sent to my room and distance. Mm -hmm. So really kids are measuring what parts of me truly physically get closeness and what parts of me bring a gap, bring distance. And then they take it a step further. I better bring out those parts of me that get smiles and that get pats on the back and that get love and that get questions. I like getting questions. That's Mm -hmm. interest. That's connection. And those parts of me that have led to yelling, to being sent to my room, to punishment, to physical abuse, to any of those really attachment threatening moments. Well, I better put those parts of me so far away and I better develop systems to keep those parts of me far away. Cause as long as I can, I can survive in this world. And so our body actually wires, develops circuits around those lessons of mm. safety versus danger. Wow. So I'm going to offer a very personal example and ask you to tell me if this is what you're talking about. So I have spent most of my life trying to figure out how to change my thinking about food and body and all of that. That's not a surprise to anyone listening. So when you talked about in the book about we hide things about ourselves Oh, that don't get the reaction that we want, that threaten our connection because we desperately need connection for survival. So we sense, especially like a highly sensitive kid, could sense what parts of herself are making her parents uncomfortable and stop doing that thing. So for me, we one of the things I love about your work is how we can openly think about how we parented and like not judge ourselves for it, just understand it was different times. We were doing the best we can. But in my family, body stuff and food stuff is a hot topic, (laughs) okay? Like my parents, as a young child, were for sure uncomfortable with my appetite. So is it possible, based on your theory, that a child whose parents were worried that they had a little girl who was chubby and who was going to keep getting chubbier— so would send her signals at dinner and around food to shut that part of herself down, might develop what could be an eating disorder. Because if I'm having to shut down hunger because that threatens my connection, then wouldn't I perhaps find bulimia where I can, in a hidden place, indulge that part of myself that threatens my connection in the light? Such a good example of how we can like jump into this. So thank you for, for sharing that. I know you talk about it. So always, everybody always appreciates how open you are. So here's what I would say. First of all, for everyone listening, I really don't think when a kid is struggling with something, my perspective is never like, oh, hey parents, like you caused that. That's never my perspective. My perspective is more nuanced. It's okay. A kid is struggling and a parent is a leader of a system. And so it's just always the leader's responsibility to figure out how they can shift something in the environment to help other people in the system thrive and change. So I think it's not our fault as parents, it's our responsibility. So mm-hmm. I don't think like you cause that in your kid, even for your parents. I'm sure your parents were doing the best they could with the resources they had available, mm-hmm. right? At the time, Absolutely. still weren't good enough, right? Still true. So when you talk about even like 
the size you were as a kid or your hunger. And I know you know this anyway. Like to me, I don't think about food when I think about eating disorders. I think about like, you're, you're talking about the size of your wants and how much you're allowed to want, right? <laughs> that's what like, it's, that's what everything always goes back to. I feel like mm-hmm. desire. What am I allowed to want? And what I hear you saying is what I wanted was uncomfortable for my parents. My parents wanted me to want less. Mm. And my parents didn't want me to want so big. They feared that if I kept wanting so big, I'd be bigger and bigger and bigger. And we can think about that in like so many meetings of big and space and taking up space. And so then one of the attachment lessons I learned, and again, for everyone listening, not at like one meal, like this is not like Mm -hmm. a single entity. One of the lessons I learned is that the more I allow my wants to come out, the less safe my family life is going to feel for me. Mm -hmm. And temperament comes into play here because then it comes out as an eating disorder, but I always think that's just a manifestation of like a much, a much bigger, more nuanced story is either. And so much of this is temperament and other factors. Like, okay, I'm just going to not want, I'm going to not want, right. I've been open to, like I struggled with anorexia as a kid. That was my solution to how much I was allowed to want. I'm just going to not want, I'm going to develop a part of me that so cuts my desires off from ever surfacing. And if I could just not want, that's my solution. Mm-hmm. Other people with different temperaments, bulimia is more of a, no, 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 like I'm going to want, or my wants are winning. So I'm just, I'm not going to not want, but I have to want in a way that only kind of, I know I'm going to keep my wants separate. Mm -hmm. And then after I've let those wants come to the surface, my attachment fears are so great. There's a part of me that's like, you're going to fuck up your whole life. What the fuck did you do? I better get those wants out of my body. Yes. And there's like, right, back and forth. Because in a, in a family, if a family is commenting and really concerned with, let's say, their daughter eating too much, if I was working with that family, I'd be like, okay, that's happening. I, I have to imagine that's coming out in other ways. I have to imagine that there'd also be a problem, let's say, if that kid's in the, I don't know, in a toy store and having a meltdown because we're here, yes, to buy a present for my cousin for her birthday. But actually, I really, really want that train set too. And not to say you need to buy the kid the train set, but what happens in terms of how that kid is taught to relate to their underlying desire? My guess is that would be as shamed as, quote, wanting too much food. Hmm. Interesting. It's funny. I think you all know my leak teal. My leak and I always talk about wanting our kids when they get older, especially our daughters. We talk about preservation of their access to desire. We mm-hmm. want them to still be able to access it. And it's and it's so easy. It's so easy to turn that off yeah. for kids. Mm. And it's also pressure from culture too. It's like our parents are doing the best they can because they think they're trying to prepare their girls for a culture that hates women who desire. Mm-hmm they're a little bit right. right? It's like the, the world doesn't allow ambition and anger and desire and hunger and appetite and sexuality. When I was reading your thing, I thought about sexuality too. I mean, in our family, sexuality was not discussed and it was tamped down and it made me think, okay, it makes sense that I wouldn't have explored sexuality. Like what do we do with for kids when we send them signals that their desire, their natural good sexual desire is a threat to their connection because we can't handle it. Yeah. Desire, pleasure. There's Mm -hmm. so many ways that that comes out. And yes, especially for young girls. Yeah. It's really shut down. Mm 
One of life's most prevalent paradoxes that I often note is a closet full of clothes, but nothing to wear. But people who say that about their closet haven't shopped at Quince. I'll put my money on that. Quince is my, and soon to be your, go-to for high quality yet affordable luxury essentials from organic cotton to washable silk and sparkling jewelry. I am currently obsessed with all of their belt bags. Do you know this? They're the kind of bags that you can sling over the front of you, the kind that are actually like attached to a belt around your waist. And there's even like nylon ones that I've bought. They are under 30 bucks and they are really good for active wear and also hands-free. This is what I'm talking about. The new bag of the future is hands-free and they are super inexpensive at Quince. Love them. Check them out. The best part is Quince works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, which not only helps us trust the quality and origin of the pieces, but also cuts out unnecessary extra costs and allows us to bask in the savings. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash hard things for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hard things to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash hard things. I love your whole uh, approach of curiosity to me is so accessible to people who don't have a, a, a lot. I'm speaking for myself, like significant amount of tools in in this area is just like curiosity being the opposite of shame. So, so when we're reacting a certain way, knowing that every response started as a childhood adaptation. And so being curious, like, what was I adapting to? I keep doing this thing that's not working for me. Why? Mm-hmm. And I was listening to you talk about that. You were advising someone who had a very complicated relationship with exercise. And they were like, it makes me feel better. Why don't I do it? Why don't I do what I know makes me feel better? And you were talking about how when you're dreading doing something that you know is good for you, that means that that started as an adaptation, which means that some part of you is protecting you because of your circuitry. You were wired that way to protect yourself. And so now asking, is that still necessary? And hmm. and actually thanking that part of you. Thank you for your years of service of protecting me. And you can stop bleeding now. This hmm. other part can step forward. And it made me think, like, like what you were just saying, G, about our parents are doing this to protect us. Yeah. It is possible to create children that, because you're being like fully authoritative, who function the way we want them to function. That is very, very possible. Like they can get the A's. They can act right in front of the people. They can be polite. Mm-hmm. They can never have wants. And those parents sometimes look like they're doing, quote unquote, the best, right? Because their kids are the best performers. They're like little soldiers walking around doing everything mm-hmm. they should. But if every if every response is a childhood ad- adaptation, you have to assume that under that, yeah. all of those adaptations are going to be the very ones that once those kids grow up are totally fucked. So that was it was, re- me. It was, that was so me. happy to me. Yes. To be like, oh my God, the parents that seem most out of control now 
are maybe the ones developing the most healthy adaptations. Shout that out. Maybe they're paying for it early, but later those adaptations are actually going to take them into life and help them function. So what I hear Dr. Becky saying <laughs> is that if your kids are assholes, well done. <laughs> <laughs> but like, can you, what do you, is yeah, that, what do you think about that? Is, Dr. Yeah. Becky? So look, I think when our kids are young, the qualities that we praise in them or that society praises in us as if they're our reflection, our compliance, our mm-hmm. subservience, or like total pliability, right? Like yes. you take a kid to a gymnastics class or something at a place they've never been to. And it's the kid who is like, okay, I guess I'll go with that person. And I guess I'll sit because they say me, everyone's like, wow, Becky, if that was my kid, which it's definitely not. <laughs> They'd be like, you are an amazing parent. Yes. Now, I don't know any parent who's like, do you know what I hope for my 30-year-old? I hope they blindly follow people's directions. I like really hope they do. I No one actually thinks that. And yeah, how we, again, how we interact with our kids and what we show them is important and what we, in that situation, almost like behavior shape them toward. Yes. That's not just going to be released from them when they're 30. And then, yes, like you have a kid who's older and you're thinking, why doesn't my kids stand up for themselves? Like they were in this situation. They should have known better. They should have said no. It's like, well, that's not different at age 30 than making sure your kid blindly follows the gymnastics teacher's instructions wow. right? versus a kid at, let's say five, who's standing next to me. Right. And this, it would be like, I don't know, like, I'm just not ready to join the party. And this can be like intense shame for a parent. Mm-hmm. My kid. Yes. Although again, like at 30, you want your kid <laughs> or you know, to be like, oh, what's going on here? Let me assess before I jump in. Let me do what I'm comfortable with, not necessarily what my peers are comfortable with. We call <laughs> kind of shyness early on what we call confidence later on. Oh, and then we call yes. confidence early on what we call blindly following the crowd later on. Right. Yes. So there's a lot in between total compliance and total assholeness. Yeah. Like, I think like we don't have yeah. to choose between those two buckets. I, I, I really don't think so. Right. But certainly like helping kids develop into adults who have a sense of themselves, who trust themselves, who know themselves, who, what we're saying, I always think who gaze in before they gaze out. Yes. Right. Gazing in first is hugely protective to our mental health. What do I want? What am I comfortable with? What do I know in this situation? Well, they are just going to be more inconvenient in childhood. It's going to be more inconvenient. I mean, I just keep thinking about the time that we took the girls to a swimming lesson. Mm. Like right now, I'm just going through all the moments where I think I've royally fucked them up. I said, Glennon, they're going to want to get out of the pool and we're not going to, they they have to finish this workout. I was like, like hell they do. We'll, we'll see. And halfway through their workout, you know, Tish gets out of the pool. Emma stays in the pool at the edge, hoping that her big sister could talk me into letting them out of the pool. And I just said, you got to get back in the pool and finish. You're going to be okay. You're not going to die. You got to get back in the pool and finish. And here's what's really interesting. I think about the two of them. Tish is the one that got out of the pool and she actually has at this point in their lives, more voice to vocalize what she wants. And Emma didn't get out of the pool because she was hoping her big sister mm-hmm. would do it for her. And I think that I really fucked them up. Abby, you did not returnally fuck them up. And also <laughs> here's where I think 
we give parents language for the in-between. Because, like, there might be someone being like, so my six-year-old never wants to do something. I just never let them do something. Like, what's in between never making them do something and always making them do something? Here's Mm -hmm. where I think is this in-between thing that we forget about. This, like, I call two things are true. Like, you can say to a kid, let's say it's in that situation, you really don't want to finish your swim lesson. I believe you. First of all, that's, like, the three most important words to say to a kid. I believe you. I believe you really don't, whatever it is. I believe the water is cold. I believe you're really tired. I believe this is zero fun. And here's this. For, it could be a million things. We paid for this lesson and I know it's hard and I know you can finish it. I really believe we can finish this lesson and then reassess lessons going forward, mm-hmm. I, whatever it is. But we can hold at once, holding a decision that feels pretty right as a parent, as a leader, and still seeing and naming and validating a kid's experience as real, Mm. right? It's the difference between saying, we're here to get a present for your cousin. What's wrong with you? You're so spoiled. You don't appreciate anything versus it's really hard to be in a toy store and see toys and not be able to get them. I believe you, you want this one so big. You know, I'm gonna actually take a picture of it and we're gonna remember this later on. My answer is still no. I know this is so hard. I'm gonna hold you as we're leaving the store because you know, you you seem not to be able to get off the floor (laughs) by yourself. Like I'm honoring my kid as a real person and I'm validating their desire. Yes. Even as I hold my no decision. Yes. Because you said- And I feel like this is one of the most groundbreaking things that we've been trying to talk about over and over on this podcast. And you said it so freaking succinctly and beautifully. We have a job and our job is to draw the boundary. Yes. And they have a job and their job is to be able to react however the hell they want, right? But can you say it in your very better way? Family jobs is really like a grounding idea for me because I always think like if you went to a job in an office and you were starting your job and and your boss was like, do your job well. See you at the end of the day. How did you feel at the end? And you didn't know what your job was. <laughs> you, you would be like, how am I going to feel good at my job? Like, I just don't know what my lane is. The most amazing person couldn't succeed there. So we have to know what our job is. Yes. So in a family system, which is the same as any system, we have job descriptions. So a parent's job in my mind is like three interrelated things. Boundaries, validation, and empathy. Boundaries answer a kid's question am I safe? And boundaries are decisions we make. Boundaries are also sometimes physical boundaries. Like it might be holding a kid's wrist and saying, I'm not going to let you hit your brother. I know you really want those blocks. I'm putting space in between the two of you. We're going to figure this out, but I'm actually physically holding that boundary. Mm -hmm. In that example, I also did validation and empathy. Like I wasn't making my kid a bad kid. I understood they want blocks. That's hard. And so those often go together. So boundaries answer, am I safe? Validation and empathy, I could cry as I think about this. I think answer a kid's question, am I real? Uh Am I real? Do the things that I feel inside me that have no markers, I'm going to like in the outside world, are they real? Mm. And when we say to a kid, you really want that toy. When we say, I'm not comfortable having you go to that kid's house, even though all the other seniors your year are going there, my answer is still no. I know that this is probably the worst thing for an 18-year-old to hear. And you just are counting down the moments till you're out of my house. And I get that. And my answer is no. And I love you. And I know you're so mad, but we're going to get through this. You're saying to them, like, you are real. Why are you crying? And so that's our job. I just, I mean, I've cried three times during I know. this. Just so you know, Dr. Becky, Abby <laughs> keeps crying. And so I just want to talk about what's going on. Well, it's just so emotional to hear um, all the different ways that could have been mm-hmm. for me and all the different ways that I can be different 
for our kids. Um, cause I, th- I think every family has, and every person, like no matter what, if, even if you had the most beautiful childhood, like we all need something to like overcome. And there is so much, there's so much stuff in my family dynamic that I know all of my brothers and sisters go through. It's just so important to hear this stuff, to be able to unlearn or rewire or recircuit ourselves as adults. Like we don't have to be those little kids. Like we can change things. I don't know. And it's it's such a different way of looking at it because isn't it true, Dr. Becky, that we're all, for some reason we do the opposite. So our kid is upset and we tell them, okay, so the swim lesson, we tell them, this is not scary. Like they're like, I'm scared. This is not scary. (laughs) I'm, it's hard. It's not hard. Like we just- we're taught that gaslighting is a parenting strategy yeah. that we can just distract. And, and so what we're saying to them then is you cannot trust your instincts and this is not real. And you're crazy. And I don't understand you. Yeah. And I'll never understand you. And so therefore you're going to have to hide the part of you yes, yeah. that scared. continues to assert itself when I continue to say that isn't true. I believe and, you. You know, there's this phrase I always think about, like, it's not mine. But especially for kids, I think for adults too, I am as I am seen. So I can't understand you really as I am ununderstandable. Mm. Like I can't be with this part of you. This part of me cannot be, you know, met with presence, right? And that realness factor, like when a kid is like, I'm scared and you get back, this is not scary. It really is an existential threat Mm -hmm. to not feel real in a moment. And then if you wonder why saying to a kid, what are you talking about? This isn't scary. Elicit such an intense reaction. Well, it's the same reaction we have when we tell someone as an adult how we're feeling and they're basically like, no, you're not. And it is an existential threat to realness in that moment. And there are some kids and Glenn, you talk about being a deeply feeling person, like deeply feeling kids is like a passion project of mine. Mm. Those kids have the biggest existential threat to their realness of, of any subset of kids. I think deeply feeling people are very porous. So they feel more things and they feel things more intensely. And therefore their expressions are even more intense, which almost pull for a not so empathically inclined adult to meet them with like, you're overreacting. Mm -hmm. You're such a drama queen, right? Which leads to further escalations, not to be dramatic but to prove their realness, to Mm -hmm. prove their existence. Mm -hmm. And there's these like nasty spirals that, that happen in family systems, Mm -hmm. you know, around that for years and years. Mm -hmm. And then it usually does, it can take to adult and be like, wait, I'm reclaiming the fact that I'm like a real adult. Right. And before we're able to say to our kids, oh, wait, the swim lesson is scary. We have to find ourselves in a situation where I don't know, like could be anything. Like I'm going to the store to get an everything bagel and they're out of everything bagels. And I'm really upset. Like I have to say to myself, you know what, Becky, like I am disappointed about that. That is real. (laughs) I'm allowed to feel that way. You know, if I want to say to my kid, oh, you're like, it's okay to be scared. Like take your time. You'll know when you're ready. Well, I'm not going to be able to do that to them unless I'm truly actively practicing doing that with myself. We can't give out what we haven't practiced giving it. No, because otherwise, and this is what's so important about what you say, otherwise we're just controlling our behavior. Like we're trying to get their behavior controlled. Like when you think about how do I parent differently? And honestly, why I never read parenting books is because it always feels like a bunch of behaviors I'm supposed to do to elicit behaviors from them. When what is true is I actually have to work out my own shit. So I'm different. For example, a deeply feeling kid 
is it is at a dinner table and wanting to be hungry, a parent doesn't have to say anything. A deeply feeling kid can notice their parents' internal discomfort with their hunger mm-hmm. from a, a look, from a mm-hmm. noise, from a quietness. And so that parent can't change that unless they're working on their own shit that came from their parents. Yeah. Which is why going back to the circuitry, it's such a gift to ourselves. I've, I felt that reading your book, like, oh, I'm figuring out why I am this way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Because and, hunger and was that- a threat to my connection. Exactly. Exactly. And and a kid's job, just to finish that, and then we could get back to internal family systems, which is my obsession, is I really believe a kid's job in their earliest years is to feel and experience their entire range of emotions. Like that's actually their job. Mm. And knowing that is really grounding, especially when you do have those three-year-olds who are having a tantrum where we've been told like, oh, it's a sign, like as if they don't respect me or they're a bad kid. We have these stories versus they're actually doing their job because in my private practice for the years I saw so many adults, like I always think I never met an adult who told me my parents successfully got rid of all my jealousy and all my frustration. Like <laughs> never, <laughs> right? Like we know it's laughable because as adults, you're like, you feel it just the same as a two-year-old, same. except arguably the stakes are higher, right? Mm-hmm. So either when you're 18 and 40 and 60, either you're prepared with skills to manage the hardest feelings of life, or you have the same feelings as everyone else. You're just as prepared as you were when you were two. And you can't learn to regulate feelings you don't allow yourselves to have. Mm. It's just impossible. If you want to manage a feeling in your body, it has to be allowed to live in your body. And so kids are trying to figure out how to manage these feelings. And we often come at them with a like, don't have those feelings Mm -hmm. approach versus wow, right now your feelings are just outpacing your ability to manage those feelings. And my job is to help increase those abilities for the rest of your life. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. It's true. You don't go somewhere new and exotic just to be there. You go to do things be it a historical walking tour, zip lining through the trees, or guided tours through museums. Like the hassle-free self-guided audio tour our family took through Versailles. If you're planning a trip and really want to make the most out of your time, I recommend you check out Viator. They have over 300,000 bookable experiences from simple tours to extreme adventures. And there's something for everyone in over 190 countries. Thrill rides, spooky ghost tours, secret food guides, exploration off the beaten path. It's all there, along with millions of real traveler reviews, 24-7 customer service, various payment options, and flexibility and support with free cancellation. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300 thousand travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Precisely on that issue of the things that we won't let ourselves feel relating to our uh, circuitry, when you say that like we all think our kids are going to heal us, but really our kids just provoke us, (laughs) it's because I was like, 
ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, it's, it's precisely those areas where our kids express the things that we weren't allowed to express and we respond to them, not responding to them. We respond to them in, in the circuit that we were responded to. So we're basically yelling at ourselves oh. in those places. Can you talk about that? And because not just with our yes. kids, with our partners, with mm-hmm. our friends, with, exactly. with our partners, with everyone. With anyone who really evokes our earliest attachment system. So ironically, it's like the people we really have the most love mm-hmm. for and with, yes. right? Like the more intense our attachment with someone, um, the more intensely they're going to trigger the same circuits from our earliest love, you know, attachment relationships. So yeah, so triggers are like my obsession. Um, <laughs> so thank you for teeing me up. Appreciate that. So my son, my oldest of three, so I have three kids. My oldest is almost 11, which is crazy. Um, he has such freedom to his desire and asking. And there have been times, of course, where I get so triggered by him. I end up having things spew out of me. Like, can you ever just accept no for an answer? Can you Mm -hmm. ever make my life easier? That's actually, that's like my favorite one, right? (laughs) Um, can't you just make my life easier one time, you know? And, and he's just like, so unflappable. He's like, chill, you know? Um, but that's so triggering for me. Mm. And going back to my good girl, you know, kind of upbringing, which I feel like I've taken a 180 from very proudly. So I learned early on, let me look out essentially for what people want of me, right? Rather than let me look in first for what I might want for myself. My son looks in and I'll do the whole, you know, no, he can't have a sleepover tonight or no, we're done with screen time, whatever it is. And then he asks again and again and again, that triggers me, right? We look to shut down in others what we had to shut down in ourselves. Mm. That's the trigger moment. We look to kind of close the gap because our body essentially like takes inventory. So my son asks and asks and asks. My body's like, what do I know about this? What do I know about asking and asking and asking for what you want? And then there's a protector part of me in IFS language, right? There's true protector parts. Who's like, oh, desire, desire. I'll I'll, I'll help the system, right? I, I know what to do. And then they they end up saying things that maybe, I don't even know if my parents ever said to me, um, why can't you make our life easier? I, I think I probably learned my lessons before those words had to even be said, mm-hmm. right? But actually what we do in our body is when we learn that something is dangerous, that part of us is non-conducive with attachment, we develop our own parts to talk to those parts, to front end that kind of attachment threat. Essentially, if I was a kid being like, you know what? I do want that sleepover. I'm gonna ask again. I'm gonna ask again. I would develop a part of me that probably wouldn't even let me leave my room to ask. It'd be like, Becky, what is wrong with you? You're so selfish. Your parents do so much for you. Can you make their life easier for one moment, right? Okay, and then that successfully shuts it down. So now my son, 30 years later, asks that part of me, like puts her finger up and she's like, I know how to handle this, right? But like you said, Amanda, like my son is a total pawn in my game. He is an object and not a subject. And I Mm -hmm. think- there's so many things I could say about how we can work on our triggers, but I think that the biggest like kind of shift and framework is what we're triggered by in our kids is usually a sign of a part of us. We need to grow yes. in ourselves. We usually need to be inspired by our kid. Mm. Right. And so it's funny when I was like really finding this triggering with my son, when he was especially younger, like I do random things to work on this. What would he do if he was in a store and the manager told me, oh, you're on day 31. You can't return this thing that doesn't work anymore. I don't think he would say, oh, okay, sorry for asking. You know, he'd probably be like, I want to talk to, you know, someone else. Like, I'm pretty sure I've been a customer for a long time and I really want to get my money back. Like, he'd probably say Mm -hmm. that. I don't know what would happen, but he'd speak 
up. And when his friend said, oh, we need to change dinner locations. Can you come closer to me instead? He'd probably say, no, no, no. I went downtown last time and I live uptown. So I I really would like to stick down to that uptown location. Right. And the interesting thing I really found was like the more I worked totally outside of parenting on that part of myself, which comes from, like you said, reminding my own protectors, hey, it's not 1990 anymore. Like, I know it's dark in there. I would say that, like, I know you don't know, but I'm now an adult and I'm going to show you over time that I have more freedom to experiment. And you're still going to protest because that's your job. You're a part of me. You're not the CEO of me. So you can stay at the board table, but maybe sit down. I can make this decision for us. And coming at that from a place of, like respect. And yes, that's like my favorite line. You said it earlier, like, thank you for your years of service. We have to thank the parts of us that were put in place to protect us before those parts are willing to kind of step back. Hmm. And then, then we can show up differently to our kids, but then we can also show up differently because people are like, that's a lot of work. And I'm like, well, yes and no. Like it's a lot of work to feel guilty and spiraling about what a shitty parent you are. Like that's also work, but the work, this work, not only does it benefit your kid, Personal, it's just going to benefit you. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. so many people, right? Are like, I asked for a raise for the first time. Like, cool. That actually impacts your life. Yes. That's amazing. It's such network effects. It's this not is the right the kind of hard. It's That's exactly. the right kind They're of hard. hard. It's yeah. the right kind of hard. So example, a line in the book that was, whenever you're triggered by somebody, don't try to shrink the thing in the other person. Try to grow the thing in yourself. I was writing in the margins, mm-hmm. not about my kids. I was writing about my marriage. So when Abby is laying on the couch, God forbid, I mean, in the <laughs> middle of the effing day, okay? There's stuff to do. For God's <laughs> sakes, Dr. Becky. <laughs> but like, honestly, you know, hustle culture and our fam and sister, you know, like our f- hustle culture was serious. If my dad was, was out of the house, and I was sitting on the couch when I heard the car come, like the mm-hmm. little, the gravel driveway, I would stand up and just grab like a dust start, rag. Yeah. Grab a dust rag. Just start, start. to look yeah. freaking busy. Mm-hmm. Internal family systems would say that a part of me developed that said, you stay busy, Glennon, in order to stay connected, in order to stay safe, you stay busy. And so when I see Abby relaxing, I have to say to myself, not try to say, oh, really? Like, you're, it's another vampire movie at two? No, Dr. Becky. Becky. <laughs> vampire movie. Well, some, it's always a zombie or something. <laughs> anyway, the point is, it's upsetting. It's a siesta. But the reason it's upsetting is not that I'm supposed to shrink her, her self-permission. I'm supposed to grow the part of myself that actually wants to rest. So I say, thank you, self, for taking care of me in my childhood home by making sure I stayed busy. But the rules are different now. I don't need you. percent. And I think there's such amazing opportunities in marriage, like given or partnership in any way that we can't exactly do with our kid because the dynamic is different where I have that same thing with my husband, right? And for years, I'd be like, but there's like the dishwasher and the laundry. There's so much stuff to do. Like I didn't even understand, like how could you be sitting on the couch? And then in my family, I feel like it was more like value and morality messages around like where people who get up early and like, you know, like there was this, you know, like stuff like that. So I was absorbed that way. It was almost maybe a little less obvious. Um, But the way you're a good person is by doing, doing, doing as much as you can. And so a couple of things, I think, first of all, yeah, saying to yourself like, okay, this thing is triggering to me. Let me almost like reverse the story. 
also for Abby to know when you do snap, I'm like, come on, get off the couch. What are you doing? Or whatever you'd say. It's not her responsibility to think this, but to know Abby, like that is actually Glennon's way of like trying to love you and help you in that moment. Yeah, she's trying to keep you from getting in trouble. (laughs) You're going to get in trouble. Dad is going to be here in like 30 (laughs) seconds. Exactly. Right, exactly. And then being able to say, like I've said to my husband and it was so hard to say the first time, I like hated it. Um, I was like, I need your help sitting on the couch. I need your help. I remember having this thought and it was the opposite of my thought. The like, cause you can be in your own room, like kind of just like cycling, like what's wrong with my husband? What's wrong with my wife? Yes. Like she's so lazy, you know? And then like, thank goodness I have a partner who helps me honor rest and relaxation. Thank goodness yep. I married the right person. Mm-hmm. And then even to bring it to your relationship, it's a really big shift for that partner to hear. Like I need your help sitting. Like, this is important. It actually is important to pause in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. And just realizing after that, like, the house doesn't fall apart. Nothing horrible happens. And it will be distressing because anytime we're rewiring something in our body, our body really resists that with good reason because it is confused. It would be the equivalent of you saying to your dad, fuck the desk drags. I'm just relaxing. Like, I'm guessing you're like, yeah, I would never have said that. No, I'm scared. You just said it. I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So talking to that distress is so important. Yes, this is a new moment. New circuits are deeply uncomfortable to build. It's like the starting of paving a road. Like Mm -hmm. that's not the same as driving down a road you've been down a billion times. And in some ways that distress, I think is, or it feels like anxiety really is, Mm -hmm. is the best evidence we have of like, oh wait, I'm changing right now. If I can tolerate this 10 more seconds on the couch, that is like 10 seconds toward change. Almost being grateful for that feeling. Your body's giving you a signal that you're doing something like so right. So the anxiety is not a signal that you should stop doing it, but that you should stay with it. Can we get back to explaining internal family systems? Because I really, yeah, I really think we have to like dig into this because this is super interesting to us. Yes. So internal family systems wasn't something I learned in grad school, but kind of came to And Dick Schwartz, who's the founder of the whole theory. Like, I just feel like he understands the mind in a way that like, I've never heard it explained. So first of all, the foundation of IFS is like, our mind is multiple. Like we all have parts. And the idea of parts of us has been kind of relegated to like multiple personality disorder, but we all have parts. In multiple personality disorder, those parts have very little connection or awareness of each other, which proves to be problematic. But we all have parts. And as we grow up, what happens is we learn these attachment lessons, right? Well, parts of us get met with love. And when we even think, someone would be like, well, I don't know about what parts, but definitely being angry wasn't allowed. Okay, mm-hmm. well, the part of you that feels angry, we could say, was like a no-go. So what do you do then? Well, then our body develops these protector parts. And protector parts, and Glennon, you would be obsessed with this one, how it applies to bulimia, but have two functions. There's the manager level, which is just the day-to-day stuff we do to kind of keep things at bay. So that might be um, intellectualizing. That might be staying really busy. That might be doing, 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 doing is a great manager for anger or for Mm. what my real desires are. Okay. But at some point, our manager parts like stop working. Kind of we break through. 
Then we have firefighter parts. Those are the parts that quickly, and like those might be the vomiting. Those are the drug use. Those are the, okay, the management system didn't exactly work. So I just got to put out this fire to get me back to safety as soon as possible. Mm. And IFS therapy is really a way of working, of, of looking at the things you struggle with through this language of parts and understanding the, the roles that each of these parts play from a place of compassion and really deep appreciation for the way this kind of system helped you develop. And then the belief really is these parts are kind of extreme, like managing things all the time, mm-hmm. or firefighting, like these parts don't want to do their jobs in such an extreme way. Mm. And so through this process of kind of unburdening these lessons we've learned about ourselves, the way that we feel bad inside through a process and, you know, an IFS therapy, our parts remain, but they become much more moderate and much more in line with continuing to serve our needs in adulthood rather than kind of a manifestation of what we had to do in childhood. There have been so many guests on the podcast that I wish we could have gotten more one-on-one time with. Because when you really get to sit down and have that intimate experience, you learn so much more. And that's why we love our longtime partner, Masterclass. Because where else are you going to get one-on-one time with RuPaul? Teaching you how to be your most authentic self as if among friends. And if you were as fascinated as I was after Natalie Portman joined the show, maybe you wanted to go deeper. And her acting class on Masterclass lets you do just that. With their set of 180 plus world-class instructors, you're in good hands when you decide to set out on your next learning adventure. Plus, if it's not for you, they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. My favorite. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash hard things. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash hard things. Masterclass.com slash hard things. You mentioned feeling bad inside. So when you say that we have to start with the belief that we are all good inside. So I think I've spent my whole life trying to figure out if I'm bad or good, right? You're good. You're good. Since I had a rough start of life with all the addiction and ruining everyone's lives, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, was I a good person acting bad the first half of my life? And now I'm a bad person acting good. (laughs) Like which, (laughs) where am I going to land? Like, what am I? Right. So what's the verdict? What's the verdict? So you talk about all of your work, starting with the belief that we're good inside. And I think it's revolutionary. It goes against everything we're taught about original sin. It goes against misogyny. It goes against racism. Can you talk to us about good inside and how it changes how we see ourselves and partners and kids and even strangers? Yes. So when I was in private practice and wanting to do more parenting work, I was like, okay, I'm going to go get like extra training for how to work with parents. And so I went to this like very evidence-based gold standard parenting program. And it was all about timeouts and sticker charts and punishments and rewards and ignoring. And what we were talking about before, I didn't realize it at the time, honestly, at the time, the logical part of my brain was just like lit up and it was like, this is amazing. This is so linear and like, oh, so perfect, you know? I solved it. Um, solved parenting. 
yeah, more of the good, extinguish the bad. And that's how you raise children. I really did at first. I was like eating it up. Um, but it, it really struck me like, this is just a system of shaping behavior. This is a system of behavioral control. Mm. I've always thought of control and trust as just opposites, right? <laughs> so we only control that or who we can't trust. And so I was like, well, this is a system of like not trusting kids. Like I don't yes. have to shape their behavior and give them stickers and punish them. And if I like didn't kind of trust that there was something inherently good that, that we could bring out. When I was in that program, it wasn't like, we believe kids are bad inside. Like, right. Nobody no. says that, <laughs> right? But it's kind of pernicious that they don't because I do think that's the operating assumption. And there really was a time in my private practice, truly, I was, I was sharing with parents how to give their kids a time out. I was like doing this thing I'd learned. And truly in the middle of the session, I stopped myself. I was like, I don't believe what I'm going to do. Like truly. <laughs> they looked at me like horrified like, and they were like, okay. Yeah. They were like, great. And I was just like, I'm going to give you your money back. I was just and they're like, say. Well, that's like the least of our concerns right now. Yeah. Like we really Can need Can you help. just please keep telling us? We don't yeah. care if you right. believe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just finish it. We just need yeah. something. But one of the things I realized is no parent feels good doing any of those things. No parent likes giving time out. No parent likes saying no TV for a week. No parent likes threatening their kids or giving sticker charts even. But we, we feel really bad feeling confused and mm. we really need clarity. You need feeling confused with your kids is such a bad feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I remember thinking after that session, like, well, how do I work with adults and what do I know helps adults? And I do believe adult symptoms were all adaptations as kids. And so I believe adults are, are, they're good. They're good people struggling. Mm. And I really do believe, and this is, I think one of the biggest things, like when kids are acting out, I really believe that kids feel whether they're being looked at as a good kid having a hard time or a bad kid doing bad things, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. And that, how they feel that, and, and also as a parent, which, which perspective we have determines everything that we do. Because mm -hmm. if we're a bad kid, if we see our kids as a bad kid doing bad things and we punish them, we do all the things. So I was like, kids are good inside. Yes, they don't have skills. Yes, they need help. Yes, they need much firmer, more active boundaries from us so they don't keep doing the things mm -hmm. that make them act out, that also make them feel out of control. But everything really came from there. And so if kids are good inside, I realized we have this gap. And when I have a gap, I think all of us, when we have a gap in knowledge, we can be curious. And being able to activate curiosity is, I think, the single most important thing in human relationships. So I'm like, okay, well, why is my kid who's good inside hitting her brother? Why is my kid who's good inside lying to my face? Why is my kid who's good inside staying out till 2 a.m., even though I said they have to be back at midnight, whatever it is? Now I don't know. Now I have a gap between their behavior and their identity. Mm. And I think the reason we insert such badness into our kids is because we end up intervening as if their behavior is a sign of who they are, rather than assuming that who they are is a good person and that their behavior is a sign of something they're struggling with mm -hmm. or a set of skills they don't yet have. Yeah. So you use example a lot of kids hitting their sister because they want their mom's attention or they, they feel left out or they feel lonely or they're struggling with that thing. I when I read that part, was thinking so much about, okay, if kids are good inside and we're good inside, then it helps me to think, okay, also my parents were good inside. So you say, you're curious. Okay, then why were they worried about the food thing? Then why were they, because they were trying to prepare me the best they could for what the culture, it just helped me so much to think backwards mm -hmm. to everybody yeah. being good inside. Can you talk and about I, lying? Because mm, I was a yes. big freaking liar my whole childhood, my whole, lie, lie, lie. Lies all the time. Lies, 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 lies. 
And I've always been like, why was I such a liar? But you wanted you attachment. Helped me understand. So talk to us about lying and why liars are great. <laughs> Perfect. I will walk down that street. Um, here's why liars are great. Okay. Um, well, kids truly, I mean, and adults, right? If we're oriented by attachment, and that really is the primary evolutionary system to keep us alive. How do I stay in relationship with my parents? How do I literally in a proximity way stay close to them? Mm-hmm. Then let's say... I don't know, you failed your test and you don't want to tell them or you stole money from them to go to a concert. And they're like, did you steal money from me? And maybe they like saw you steal money. Like they literally saw, they have a video. They're like, I saw this. And you're like, I didn't do it. Right? Like lies can get really aggressive, yes. right? Yes. Compared to reality. Well, again, if I go to, okay, why would my kid who's a good kid, why would my kid who's a good kid lie to my face? Why? Why would someone who's good lie to someone's face. Again, now I can get curious. And I, I think kids in those situations lie for a couple of reasons. Number one is to preserve attachment. Yes. In a moment, if I believe I'm going to say something that's going to get me punishment or distance, or even that look of you're a bad kid, you're a bad kid. Some parents, it was punishment for some parents. It's the disappointment look that also just communicated. You're a bad kid. You don't meet my expectations in life. If I know it's going to be met with judgment and distance my body every single time is going to protect my attachment Mm -hmm. through having longer and longer and longer until maybe that truth actually comes out. I'm just maximizing survival at every moment. Mm. And we can't, we can't beat our body's evolutionary systems. Like we wouldn't want to. And in that moment, that's what someone is doing. So I think a lot of times parents will say to me then, oh, so it's okay that my kid just lied to my face. And I often think, again, it's just this black and white thinking we can have. There has to be something between, tell me the truth or go to your room, you're grounded for a week. And, oh, it's totally fine. No big deal. Like Mm -hmm. those are not the only two buckets. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing with lying is if your kid is lying to you in a consistent way, I think the hard mirror of that is something's really off in our relationship. Mm -hmm. My child feels like there's a lot of things that are off limits to tell me Mm -hmm. because they're scared of my reaction. And now they live in my house. But if I want to have a relationship with my kid when they're older, guess what? They're still going to do things that are tricky and hard. That's actually where they need my help the most. That's literally where they need my help the most. And I haven't made myself a part of their life in that way. Mm. It's really And you can understand because that's literally why I lie. Exactly. Me too. I lie to preserve attachment. I don't want people to think different of me. I don't want them to reassess our relationship on the basis of this inconvenient truth. Exactly. And that's also weirdly why sometimes I'm most afraid to tell the truth, i.e. set boundaries with my kids. I'm trying to preserve the attachment with them. And I'm afraid of the risk of doing that. So you can have empathy yes. for why they do that. Talk about that, Dr. Becky, because I just want to be clear when you said our job is to hold the boundary, but we also get to allow our children to have feelings about that boundary. This is the important thing because basically we're all used to being like, I have boundaries, here are my boundaries. And then the other person's upset and we're like, no worries if not, right? We like <laughs> change we change, but, but, yes. but you make it very clear that 
Our kids should not dictate our boundaries, but then we should not dictate their feelings. feelings. Yes. Yes. And That's you use exactly right. embody your authority, which I love. Yes. Can you say that? Because it felt like yes. so different than I've understood it before. And when Dr. Beck yes. is talking about this pod squad, think about it in terms of your friends and your partners and people at work and all the people. Yes. I think that's a big thing is that we, we, and I think it is what's resonating with people like, oh, there's a way to like honor my kids' feelings and embody my authority. Honoring their feelings doesn't mean I become this permissive anything goes parent. And also embodying my authority doesn't mean I'm authoritarian parent who doesn't give a shit about my kids' feelings. Like again, whenever we're in two buckets, we're asking the wrong question. Like there has to be something else. And so this goes back to that idea of family jobs and family jobs really, they, they have this like nice dance with each other that usually happens. So, you know, let's say what, what's a boundary I might set with a kid. Let's say it's not going on a sleepover or something like that, or saying no to something they want to do socially. Right. So a boundary which again, should come from my sense of like, this is the right decision for my family, or this is like the safe decision, right? Maybe I'm saying no, because I think it's not safe. Maybe I'm saying no, because I know we're leaving at five in the morning for a trip. And it just like, doesn't make sense to go pick up my kid at one in the morning somewhere. It doesn't matter. But embodying our authority sounds something like this. And let's say it's a situation where I think it's not safe. Look, part of my decision, part of my job as your parent is to make decisions that I think are safe and that are good for our family, even when you're not happy about it. This is one of those times. I know this is a huge bummer. I know you're probably saying this is not a huge bummer. This is worse than that. And this feels awful. I both care about all of those feelings. I really, really do. And I'm holding my no. So you're allowed to be mad. Actually, if I were in your shoes, I'd be mad too. And I know our relationship is strong enough to get through that together. I know it is. And in that way, then, yeah, I'm letting my kid get mad. Now, let's say my kid is starts hitting me. I'm not going <laughs> to let them hit me just because they're mad. If they're like, well, start cursing at me and say, look, I'm going to step in the other room. I know there's so many ways you could tell me how mad you are at me, and that is not one I'm going to tolerate over and over. So when you're ready to tell me in a different way, I will be here to talk to you. Again, there's a difference between feelings and behaviors. But embodying our authority is, is something I think isn't talked about enough in any parenting approach where we're also validating feelings. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's the other part that makes it safe. Because what's really terrifying for a kid, I think, beyond not feeling real and not feeling like their feelings are being noticed, is the opposite. Is when, let's say, my five-year-old is like, my parent just said, no more TV. And then I had a tantrum. And then they let me watch another one. That's mm -hmm. weird. Well, that feeling felt really overwhelming to me. My frustration was really overwhelming me. That's why it exploded out of my body. But wow, like that feeling really is as bad and poisonous as I experienced it. Because look, it just, it just scared my parent. Like wow. it just led them to change their decision. Wow, that's really scary. Yes. And so holding a boundary and embodying your authority as a decision maker is actually a key part of helping kids learn to manage and feel safe with their feelings. I've never heard it described that way. Whoa. So when you change your mind. mind after because your kid freaked out, what you're saying to that kid is, that was so out of bounds that I can't even be the boss anymore. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is I'm as scared of that feeling in you as you are. And that's not to say we can't change decisions. And of course, sometimes I see my kid of a meltdown. I'm like, I can't deal with this. Fine, watch another <laughs> show. Like these are general patterns, not like right. every day. Or maybe I change my mind because I say, you know what? 
hold on a second. First, let's take some deep breaths. Let's calm down. I'd probably put a little space around that. You know what? I actually do usually let you watch that many shows. I don't know why I said something different. I'm changing from a place of reconsidering my decision Mm -hmm. versus changing from a place of being scared of my kids' emotions. Our kids know the difference. I always think, here's a good, like, if you had a pilot of a plane, right? To me, this is the best metaphor. And it was really turbulent. And everybody was screaming in the background. I feel like there's three pilots that could come on. One pilot is... Stop screaming. It's no big deal. (laughs) Nothing's going on. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Like, if that's my pilot, I'd be like, are you not aware of how turbulent it is? I don't feel great, number one, that you're yelling as a pilot. It's not so sturdy. But number two, like, it actually is turbulent. And so you're not recognizing that. Doesn't feel good. The number two pilot is like, I'm going to open the pilot door. And if anybody wants to fly this plane, like, you know, and knows what to do, like, just come because I'm not feeling so sure. Any one of us would be like, it's not the turbulence that's scaring me. It's this pilot that's scaring me. Like that's really a lot of absorption and lack of boundaries, right? The third pilot would be like, hey, you guys are screaming back there. It is really, really turbulent. Yes, it is. I believe you that it feels as bad. And I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. We're still landing in Los Angeles at the same time. I'm going to go off the loudspeaker so I can do my thing. If screaming continues to be your thing, do it. And I'll see you when you're on the ground. Like, boom, I want that pilot every time. And our kids want that pilot. Mm. And embodying your authority while also validating their experience is what makes that pilot feel so sturdy Mm -hmm. and safe. Yeah, Sturdy and safe. Amen. Sturdy and safe. And it works with partners. Works with everybody. Works with your work people. Your job is to dictate your boundaries, but not their feelings about your boundaries. All right. So we're going to wrap now, but we're, we have a whole nother episode coming with Dr. Becky next. So everyone who's panicking, don't worry. And we're going to talk more about that consequences and punishment because that, that Dr. Becky just hit on is very fascinating. Yeah. And Dr. Becky, what's one thing that's a very little thing that they can do not to parent their kids better. All right. I don't know how much I can overemphasize That's not what we're doing here. I know that's what you're doing, Dr. Becky, but I care about the pod squatters, not their kids, their little hearts. Okay. I care about you. And so, what can the grown up people listening to this pod squad do? It's a little thing that will help them reparent themselves. So, I think right now, if you think about something that you hold with like a lot of shame, right? Like it's something you did today. It's something you did years ago. It's some moment or behavior you remember. And you're like, it just feels that awful shame feeling. And then form like this fill in the blank sentence with it. I'm a good person who? So mine might be, I'm a good person who yelled at my kids this morning. Mm. And it's that formula I find is like, the simplest way to remind your body that like who I am as a person inside is separate from this thing or this decision or this behavior that I really don't feel proud of. So it's our behavior, not our identity. Beautiful. Pod squad, you are a good person who probably did a bunch of shitty things. (laughs) We love you more for it, not less. We believe you. We, we believe, believe you. you. Oh my it's gosh. Yeah. We believe you. We will uh, be back here with Dr. Becky next time. We love you. Bye. See you soon. 
We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine. Pod Squad, some of what we share with you on the show are our individual unique experiences in therapy and the takeaways that help us grow, appreciate each other, and navigate this beautiful life we're doing together. Thank you for doing it with us. But the things we talk about in therapy itself, these are things we wouldn't necessarily share with just anyone. I think there are a few things more important than finding the right person to share your deepest thoughts, feelings, and questions with like a therapist. That's why we are thrilled about Alma's support of our show. They're big believers that you need the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. Alma helps you to find a therapist who gets you based on your needs, someone with whom you'll feel comfortable, heard, secure. Plus, and this shouldn't be overlooked, over 96% of therapists at Alma accept insurance because you want to pick someone based on the right fit, not just based on finances. You can browse their directory now. You don't even need to create an account. Visit helloalma.com slash hard things to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash hard things. The holiday season may be at its end, thank you, baby Jesus, but the opportunities for giving amazing life-changing gifts have just begun. And yes, diapers are a life-changing gift. Imagine your first-time parent struggling with time management and financial burdens. Don't really have to imagine. I remember it directly. And all the challenges of your first child. And then you get a huge shipment of diapers funded by all your family and friends. That's a good feeling. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's exactly what Pampers is doing with their diaper stash. I love this so much. It's an online diaper fund. So you can contribute to a diaper stockpile and help ensure it never runs out. And one of the most difficult things about buying diapers for others is making sure that you guess the right fits and sizes. And with Pampers Diaper Fund, all that guesswork goes away. So if there's a new parent or expecting parent in your life, you will be making their lives a lot easier and showing them how many people are excited for their huge milestone. Organizing a diaper stash is easy. Go to diaperstash.pampers.com to set up a fund and give the ultimate group gift. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. 